Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. I uh, don't really have anything to complain about. Um, really? Yeah. You're not going to complain about the snow we got? No, we live in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> the snow has turned our Jack Pumpkin into Grandpa Jack. Yeah, that's true. Um, he's like, you know... His teeth have curled. kind of curled in, uh, so he's got that, like, gummy kind of look now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I probably made him too early. That's probably true, but you were very excited. Yeah. We'll see if he makes it to Halloween. Yeah. I mean, pumpkins are cheap. Yeah, it was like $5. Yeah. I mean, it's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? $10? So, Ben, what are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are heading over to Britain for an anthology film. Jolly old England. The Queen's country. I don't know where or what that accent is anymore. That... Cannot wait to see the White Cliffs of Dover. Okay. <laughs> uh, this movie was brought to our attention by Tumblr follower Laughing Academy, uh, who gave us a little heads up that this was coming up soon. Uh, So thank you, Laughing Academy. Uh, And today we are watching Three Cases of Murder from 1955. Directed by... Wendy Toy, David Eady, George Moore O'Farrell, and Orson Welles. Orson Welles? Yep. The man himself, kind of. (laughs) He's not himself? Well, he's an actor. Um... (laughs) He kind of directs it. Okay. Okay. This is an anthology picture. Yeah, it was either going to be an anthology flick or very, very troubled production. Yes. With that (laughs) list, yeah. Other anthologies we've had on the show um, most recently, also from the UK, is Dead of Night from 1945. You can find out more about that movie in episode 132. It's also our highest ranked anthology movie at number 39. Yeah, that is pretty high. Yeah. Um, and then the only other anthology film on the list is 1919's Unhunlicker Geschichten, Eerie Tales, which you can hear more about in episode four. Yes. And it's ranked number 73. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the remake of Eerie Tales is like a pseudo-anthology because it's separate stories, but they're linked in that movie? Yes. With like a through line? We also decided that it was not horror, so it's on the miscellaneous list. Right. This movie comes to us from British writer, director, editor, producer Ian Dalrymple. And Ian Dalrymple was born in Johannesburg in South Africa in 1903. He got his start in advertising before becoming an assistant editor at Gainsborough Pictures and then moving up to becoming a full editor at Gamont British. Uh, he actually edited The Ghoul way back in 1933, along with 27 other movies. From there, he went into screenwriting, and during the war, he worked for the Crown Film Unit, gaining experience as a producer of propaganda films. After the war, he founded his own production company, Wessex Productions, um, initially releasing their films through the Rank Organization. 
Five films released with rank all failed to make a splash at the box office. Oh, no. So, in 1949, Wessex moved from rank to Alexander Korda's London Films, and immediately, Wessex fortunes changed, and the films released under London Films were hits. Wessex is a place, right? Yes. Um, in the west of England. So he just needed to get into, like, an urban center by moving to London Films or whatever? <laughs> It's not really how any of that works, but okay. So Dalrymple would produce Three Cases of Murder for Wessex Films, co-writing the screenplay with Donald B. Wilson and Sidney Carroll, who is almost certainly best known as the writer of the 1961 pool movie The Hustler, starring Paul Newman. So the film's three segments are each directed by a different person and have unique casts, with the exception of actor Alan Battle, who is in all three segments. Did he, uh, was he in the wars? Badell. Uh, oh, ba yeah. Badell. Yeah. Okay. Irish radio and television personality Eamon Andrews serves to introduce each segment. The first segment uh, was directed by Wendy Toy, who was one of only two women directors in Britain at that time. And possibly one of the first female directors we've had on the show? Gosh, you might be right. I can't recall any previous female directors. I'm sure we've we've maybe talked about them in other capacities, but I don't know as we've had any films on the list directed by one. I could be wrong. We're 170-something episodes into doing this, but yeah. Well, that's kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, it kind of sucks that it took till 1955. Right. Wendy Toy was born in London in 1917. She was initially a dancer and choreographer, and the majority of her career, she was a director for theater. Um, she did lots of plays, operas, ballets, tons of directing for the stage. Her first short film, The Stranger Left No Card, in 1952, won Best Short at Cannes. Uh, highly acclaimed. Um, it sounds like a thriller. It's like a little mystery short um, stars Alan Bedell is actually his first film, and that kind of shot putted her into movie making. All in all, the three directors of the three segments were kind of like up and comers being given like a shot, I guess you could sure. say. It makes sense that they would be given a shot on like an anthology movie where like if one of the segments sucks, at least mm -hmm. maybe the two others will succeed. Mm-hmm. So from that short film, she directed her segment here in Three Cases of Murder. Uh, her short film, On the Twelfth Day, was nominated for an Oscar. And she directed five feature films from 1954 to 1963, before then spending the rest of her career directing for the stage. Which of the segments does she direct? The first segment. Do you have a title? It's called um, In the Picture. Cool. Uh, she passed away in 2010. The director of the second segment, David Eady, was born in 1924, and similar to Wendy Toy, he had only directed a short film before this, um, Bridge of Time, co-directed with Jeffrey Boothby, which had garnered an Oscar nomination for Best Short Film. The second segment is called Killing Elizabeth. The third segment is based on a short story uh, by W. Somerset Mom. Mom? Or Dad. Uh, it's called Lord Mount Drago, 
Yeah, we've seen W. Somerset Mom on the show before. Yeah, it was a while back though, right? Yeah, we talked about him in episode 17 on 1926's The Magician. Yeah, that was a while back. Uh, I might need a bit of a memory refresher on this dude. Absolutely. So, William Somerset Mom was born in 1874 and passed away in 1965. Okay, so he would have been alive at the time of this film's production then. Absolutely. By the time he was 10, he had unfortunately lost both his parents to illness, his mom to tuberculosis, and his dad to cancer. Hmm. So he decided to pursue medical school and to become a physician. Okay. However, his passion lay in writing. Uh, He had been writing since he was 15, um, even during medical school. In 1897, his very first novel, his very first piece of published content, was titled Liza of Lambeth. And it's a depressing novel of a factory worker named Liza as she falls in love with a domestic abuser and dies from a miscarriage. Yep. Sounds like it was probably very successful. It was super popular. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So much so that mom quit school to become a writer full time. Nice. Other very well-known novels of his include 1908's The Magician, uh, which was actually inspired by Aleister Crowley, 1915's novel of human bondage. Yeah, I think that's the big one. And 1944's The Razor's Edge. Mm-hmm. Now, those are some of his most famous novels. He wrote many others, as well as many short stories and plays. During World War I, he joined the British Red Cross as an ambulance driver and was able to put some of that medical knowledge to use. In 1917, he married Siri Welcome um, after having an affair with her while she was still married. Sure, like you do. And having a kid with her mm. while they were still married. Yep. Um, And they had 13 years of a relatively okay marriage. Eventually, they separated in 1930. During the 1930s, Mom was considered one of the highest paid British writers and one of the most famous. Um, He lived in the French Riviera with his companion, Gerald Haxton. Oh. Yeah. With the outbreak of World War II, they left the French Riviera. Good good call. Um, moved to San Francisco. Sure. Good call. In 1944, his companion Gerald died. So, Mom moved back to England, all the while sharing very anti-Semitic views about Jewish immigrants and refugees, despite Mm. him being, like, an immigrant when he went to the French Riviera, when he went to the U.S., now he's back home, like... But when you're British, you're never an immigrant, you're a colonizer. (laughs) You're never an immigrant, you're an expat. Yeah, fair enough. After World War II uh, and things settled down in France, um, Mom moved to France in 1946, um, where he shared a home with Alan Searle until his death in 1965. Hmm. So at the time of this movie, he is in France. Yeah. Um, but the short story that that segment is based on, comes from a short story collection called The Mixture As Before, which was published in 1940 when he was still in San Francisco. Got it. The short story, Lord Mount Drago. The Lord part is because Mount Drago is is a member of Parliament. Yeah, he's in the House of Lords, presumably then. 
Yeah. Yeah. So Lord Mountdrago is the Secretary for Foreign Affairs, and he begins seeing a psychoanalyst, Dr. Odlin, because he keeps having these dreams about a colleague of his who he's like, this guy's nothing. Why am I having dreams about him? Okay. The colleague in question is a Welsh Labour MP, Owen Griffiths. And Lord Mountdragon's like, this guy is nothing. Why is he, like, coming up in my dreams so frequently and so prominently? Like, this this is ridiculous. Things start to escalate because Mountdrago starts to believe that Griffiths knows about these dreams. Okay. Because in one dream, Mountdrago hits Griffiths on the head, and the next day in Parliament, Griffiths complains about a headache. Gotcha. So, Dr. Odlin is like, well, do you have any kind of feeling of guilt towards him? Maybe that's what's weighing on your mind. And Mondrago's like, no, this guy's just an insignificant worm, to the point where, like, one time he brought up, like, a thing in Parliament, and I just totally wrecked him with my, like, oratory prowess. Okay. And Dr. Odlin's like, mm, that's probably what you're feeling guilty about. You should probably apologize. Okay. And Mount Drago goes like, fuck that. But Griffiths is becoming increasingly prominent in his mind and he can't stand it. So he commits suicide. And Dr. Odlin, finding out about this, reads that Griffiths was also found dead that same night. With the implication of, you have a very confused look on your head. I'm not confused. I'm just thinking this is a bad story. The implication is that it's kind of like, um, you know that movie Stranger Than Fiction? Yeah. Where, like, the writer is writing about this guy who is living, but, like, everything. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of like, oh, like, Griffiths died because Mount Yeah, there's some weird connection, sure. Yeah. But, like, I'm, I don't know, maybe it'll make more sense when we see the movie, but, like, I'm sitting here being like, okay, so he had some dreams about a guy. His doctor told him maybe if you apologize, the dreams will go away. He was like, no, killed himself. The other guy died. The end? Like, I don't care. And it's like, <laughs> what's the point? It's- so some of the critiques that I read online were talking about how uh, it's speaking to, like, the class divide with this lord being like, fuck this, like, common man Welsh guy. Sure. And, like, not being able to even, like, swallow his pride to apologize. And that's what drives him to commit suicide. Yeah. Counterpoint, then the twist ending of Griffiths dying at the end means that he was of Mount Drago in the first place, so it upholds a classist point of view. Yeah. In any case, yeah. Maybe it'll make more sense when we see it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that probably if I was up on, like, British politics in the 1930s, it would be like, ah, yes, what a clever satire of such and such, but, like... 1940s. You said 1930s. Oh. Well, regardless. But I think you're right. It will probably make more sense when we watch it. Yeah. So the third segment was assigned to George Moore O'Farrell to direct. O'Farrell had been born in 1907 and was primarily a television director. Um, By this point, he had directed several acclaimed television versions of, like, Shakespeare plays and literary adaptations. His version of Hamlet was well-regarded. He'd done a very successful version of Wuthering Heights, that kind of thing. 
And so this was his first, like, theatrical outing. So again, like the other two directors, it was like, okay, you've gotten some, like, buzz, some heat, doing some minor stuff. Let's, like, give you a chance, move you up to the big league, see what you can do kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Big thing about the third segment is that they got Orson Welles for Lord Mount Drago. Okay. Which makes sense if he's supposed to be, like, some... Pompous asshole. Yeah, who likes giving speeches and stuff like that, right? It's a good, good, good casting. Um, <laughs> and so that was like the big get for that segment. It's also like the big get for the movie. Like he's the most notable actor in the cast by far, the most notable person involved with this whole movie by far. Orson Welles and his significance to like film and the like story of his life and like his career is all kind of a little bit out of proportion to... His this, role in this movie? Right, and the significance of this movie. And, like, this isn't an Orson Welles podcast. I'm sure that would be, like, a really cool podcast to do. You'd probably have a lot of neat things to talk about. But, like, I feel like, you know, going into an hour and a half on Orson Welles at this time is not maybe the point for talking about this movie. So I'm going to give some information about Orson Welles, but it's going to be a very brief, shallow overview. Orson Welles is American, unlike all these other people I've been talking about. He was born in 1915. He was definitely like considered like a child prodigy from like a young age. Uh, he started acting in 1931, so when he was 16 years old. Um, by 1934, he was acting in radio. And the first thing that really kind of put him on the map, as it were was in 1936, he directed a production of Macbeth on the stage with an all-African-American cast, uh, with the setting of the play moved from Scotland to Haiti. And this was colloquially referred to as the Voodoo Macbeth, and this got him, like, a lot of critical attention. It was, like, an interesting, um, you know, recontextualization of the text, that kind of thing. Based on the attention and success he got from that, he parlayed that into the formation of the Mercury Theatre Company, which would be like a repertory company that, you know, he would direct and star in these productions they would put on, have the same kind of cast over and over. Um, their first big notable production was Wells' version of uh, William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, which he recontextualized to talk about the rise of fascism in Europe at the time. That was in 1937. The success of the Mercury Theater on the stage led to them getting offers to do a radio show. And so Mercury Theater on the air started in 1938 with them doing like adaptations of literary works and things like that. The big one here being War, War of the, the Worlds. Worlds. Um, Wells' War of the Worlds broadcast was um, done in this kind of like pseudo-documentary style where it was as if you were listening to, like, radio news broadcasts of the events happening. And so people who tuned in late didn't realize that it was fictional and freaked out. And this caused um, a bit of a panic among people. This panic was then exaggerated by the news media when they reported on the panic. And this kind of really brought Orson Welles to, like, national attention as, like, this, like, entertaining charlatan. The War of the Worlds broadcast and its notoriety uh, ended up with Wells getting a offer to come to Hollywood uh, to get a contract with RKO in 1939. And Wells was, um, you know, by 1939, he's 24 years old. And RKO gave him an offer for a two-picture deal where he would get to do whatever he wanted. 
They gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so he arrived in Hollywood, and pretty much from the moment he arrived in Hollywood, the town was against him. He was a New York East Coast theater guy who was 24, who was coming in and being given the best deal anyone had ever been given in Hollywood. People were pretty resentful. And it didn't help that his first movie, Citizen Kane, was seen by many people to be a thinly veiled attack piece on wealthy newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst, who owned theater chains, owned newspapers, was kind of like a 1930s Rupert Murdoch kind of figure. And so when Hearst found out about Citizen Kane, Wells's first film, he did all he could to kind of turn public opinion against it, bury it, really turn the town against Wells. And so Citizen Kane, which is now considered one of the greatest films of all time, came out in 1941 to most of Hollywood being, like, against it. Mm Mm-hmm. Wells' second film, The Magnificent Ambersons, would be released in 1942. However, due to the kind of situation with Citizen Kane that was going on, along with other problems in Wells' career at this point, uh, with Hollywood kind of starting to turn against him, uh, control of Magnificent Ambersons was taken away from Wells, and the final film was re-edited without his consent and reshot. Uh, for a different ending without his consent, and released in this, like, truncated version, despite the fact that his contract had promised him total control. The reason why the studio was able to get away with doing this was because at the time Wells was in South America, promoting the United States to South America, um, while also... the good neighbor? The good neighbor policy, yeah. Yeah. While also filming um, essentially like a docudrama called It's All True that was going to be promoting South America to the United States when it premiered there. Uh, This was being done at the behest of the U.S. government to try and convince South American countries to be less friendly with Nazis. That all fell apart when, while Wells was out of the country, RKO used the opportunity to re-edit The Magnificent Ambersons. And so when Wells returned to the United States to try and save that movie, he left It's All True unfinished. And so that fell apart. And this sort of cascade effect of failures uh, led to Wells' film career kind of collapsing. I think we briefly talked about this and Orson Wells' effect on RKO when we were covering some of Val Luton's early films. Yeah, because his movies kind of came right out of RKO deciding not to spend money on things anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Wells spent most of World War II either doing his radio shows or doing, like, USO um, tours uh, where he was doing, like, circuses and stage shows to entertain uh, the troops, basically. After World War II, Wells tried to get his filmmaking career back on track. Uh, He made a film called The Stranger, and the idea of The Stranger is it's about a Nazi war criminal hiding out in a small American town who is getting tracked down by Edward G. Robinson. It's really good. It was the first film Wells made that really like made a profit. He made it on time, under budget, uh, made a profit at the box office. It was all kind of to prove like, hey, like, you know, I'm good. I can do things. You can trust me with money. Uh, the people who made The Stranger, who put up the money for it, betrayed Wells on his contract and ended up screwing him over anyways. Uh, So despite the fact that the film made money, Wells didn't really get anything out of it. Ultimately, uh, he was always kind of eternally in need of funding for whatever his next project was. 
whether it was a stage show or what have you. And so he would take acting gigs on radio or in films to try and work up the money to fund projects because other people wouldn't give him money, so he'd have to use his own money. Mm-hmm. Random commercials. Right. With all of the money problems he was having and sort of the problems he was having with Hollywood, he moved to Europe in the late 1940s. There he made The Third Man in 1949, uh, where he stars as Harry Lyme. Uh, the film itself is directed by Carol Reed. The success of The Third Man led to Wells reprising the role of Harry Lyme in the Harry Lyme radio show of the late 40s and early 50s. Roles, But he dies at the end, Ben. Yeah, it's a prequel. Okay, spoilers, sorry. <laughs> Roles on radio, on television, odd jobs here and there were then used by Wells to fund his next film, Othello, which was made on and off in various parts of Europe at various times for the next few years um, before coming out in 1951 and then in 1952 and then in 1955 in various versions and re-edits as kind of would be par for the course for Wells movies for a long time. At the time he appeared in this film, uh, he was in the process of producing Mr. Arcaden, which would be his next feature film based on three episodes of the Harry Lyme radio show, kind of put together and jumbled around and turned into a new story. That movie would be released in a variety of versions as well, beginning in 1955. So that's kind of my brief overview of Orson Welles' deal. Cool. So he's basically just doing this movie so that he can get money for his next movie. Right. One thing that you didn't touch on that might be good for us to mention is the reason why Wells is included in our list of directors, even though he's an actor here, is because he tended to take over a little bit as a director in his projects. Yeah, so during the first day on set, Wells began offering suggestions to O'Farrell about how to direct the Lord Montrego segment. And by the third day, he had taken over completely. Yeah. I don't think Wells means to. I think he is a perfectionist and wants to see something done in a certain way and accidentally takes over. He certainly, like, would have strong opinions on, like, this is the right way to do this. You should be doing it this way. I also think he's someone who gets very, very over-enthusiastic about things. And so... I could totally see this guy, this big personality, you know, coming in and being like, well, you should do it this way, that way, and the other way. And after a couple of days of that, just being like, fine, Orson, you just do it. I'm not going to sit here and let you backseat direct. Like, you know, you either stand up to him and you say, this is my picture, or you kind of just let him take over. Um, so from the information I have, yeah, by the third day, he had basically taken over directing. He's not credited as a director in the film itself, but he is credited as a director for this movie, like, in exterior sources, I guess, if that makes sense. Sure. Wells' presence in the cast was supposed to make this film easier to sell overseas. You know, he's the big star draw. Three Cases of Murder was released in the United States first for this reason on March 15th, 1955. In the UK, however, it actually had a hard time securing exhibition 
because the major theater chains argued to London Films that Wells was not a box office draw, that he hadn't had a hit in a long time, and that the film itself was mediocre and Wells' presence in it did not make up for that. Ouch. Yeah. It was eventually released on the 12th of May in 1955 in the United Kingdom, and the film had cost £250,000 to make. Uh, Ultimately, it did not make much of a splash on either side of the pond, and I think it would probably be largely forgotten today if it wasn't for the Orson Welles connection, because Welles having this really big reputation in film and film history and being so monumental and infamous and all of these things, you know, even the tiniest little side projects of his, you know, get big spotlights put on them for that reason. Yeah. Uh, Three Cases of Murder is available on DVD in Region 2 from Odeon Entertainment. And if you're in Region 1, you can watch it streaming on the Criterion channel. Ah, Criterion comes through for us again. Yes. Well, folks, hopefully you can watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss the three cases of murder from 1955. Directed by Wendy Torrey, David Eady, George Moore O'Farrell, and Orson Welles. On the DVD, uh, included as a bonus feature, is the short film Return to Glennis Call, which is a fun little Irish ghost story film that Orson Welles uh, did while he was making Othello. It's also a bonus feature on the Criterion DVD for Othello. Uh, And it's worth checking out. Yeah, it's cool. See you on the other side, everybody. back to Scream Scene, we just finished watching Three Cases of Murder from 1955, directed by Wendy Toy, David Eady, George Moore O'Farrell, and Orson Welles. Three Cases of Murder! <laughs> um, what did you think of this, Sarah? For the most part, I enjoyed it. The first segment dragged its heels a bit, but once it got into it, I had a lot of fun. Um, and... Yeah, I think that's how you could describe this movie. A lot of fun. Okay, we had very different reactions to this movie. Um, There were things I liked in this movie, but for the most part I found this movie kind of um, dull. Dull? Yeah. Uh, I was not a fan. There was some stuff I liked, but for the most part I was not a fan. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, discussion will be fun. (laughs) Yes. So, um, I feel like with the anthology format, Do you want to change it up a bit and maybe we talk about the story of each one and then discuss each one individually? Sure. So the movie starts with the framing device of this guy entering a dark room. He seems like he's a burglar. And then he shoots a gun three times. The lights come on and he takes off his mask and he's like, that's how I like to commit murder. Fast and quick. Get it over with. Painless. Well, that's not how these people would like to commit the three cases of murder. This isn't actually what he says exactly, 
but that gives you the general tone. Yeah, like, uh, you know, he's doing the horror host bit, and like a lot of horror hosts, there's it's kind of a tortured um, <laughs> way to get around to saying, I'll be introducing three stories about murder today. He's indicative of a larger problem that I have with the entire movie. That it's British? Yes. <laughs> How extremely British this movie is, but I'll, I'll talk about that a bit more later. Okay. Our first story is titled, In the Picture. Submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society. <laughs> Mr. Jarvis is a guide at the museum, and he's been there for a little and a half years. He's seen some pieces go missing, but, you know, it happens, I guess. He has a favorite painting, and in front of this painting is a pane of glass to protect it from, like, people touching it with their dirty little fingers. But this glass keeps getting broken, and no one at the museum seems to be able to figure out who's doing this, why it's happening, what's going on. Now, this being Mr. Jarvis's favorite painting... He happens to notice that sometimes things change. So the painting is of this very kind of gothic mansion on a spooky plain amidst fog and trees. And he notices, you know, some branches that used to be on the pathway aren't there anymore. And little things like this. So after reporting the broken glass today, he's standing there admiring the painting. And... Another guy is there, admiring the painting as well. We'll call him Mr. X, because that's who he is in the credits. And they start talking about the painting, and Jarvis makes a comment of, like, would someone even live there? It looks abandoned, because there's no light. And then Mr. X is like, ah, that's what it needs, some light. Turns out Mr. X is the artist, and he turns to Jarvis and says, have you ever really looked at a painting? So we, as the camera, push into the painting closer and closer, and suddenly, poof, we're at the door of the castle, and we're being let in. We are in the painting. And of course, with this guy being revealed to be the painter, um, the painting was painted, like, what, in the 1700s or something? Yeah. So he, he, he's long dead, or should be. Yes. Yeah. There is a woman also in the house, she doesn't really get a name, and a Mr. Snyder who um, seems to have a fascination with pinning butterflies, doing that thing, that scientific thing. Lepidoptery? Yes, that. Um, also in the house are all of the missing art pieces that Jarvis has noticed. Um, there is uh, a piece of art, I guess, that isn't missing from the museum, but is on display. It's of a taxidermied cat. Um, and then, of course, these butterflies from Mr. Snyder. Throughout this whole thing, you're getting a lot of spookiness and, like, tension between the three people who live at the house, and it becomes clear that they're dead, and that this isn't hell, this is like a limbo space. Um, we don't really know the woman's story. The painter seems to be trapped in limbo here because he can't finish his painting. Uh, whenever he thinks he's done, he finds something else that needs to be done, like the light in the window, for example. Um, and the Mr. Snyder seems to have, like, come from another painting and now is in this painting, and he got moved because he enjoyed the past painting too much. So it's definitely, like, 
if you think of like Virgil's layers of hell, this is like a limbo be bored to death kind of <laughs> layer of hell. Yeah, like the implication seems to be that living in paintings is a thing that happens to you potentially after you die as a punishment for things. Yeah, they don't really explain. No. They don't really have to, though. In the midst of all this, we also learn that there is only one candle and one source of fire, a uh, tinderbox, um, both of which is under Snyder's control. Um, Mr. X hopes to gain a little bit of control by getting Mr. Jarvis's matches, but there are no more matches. So, Mr. X drugs Jarvis and tells Mr. Snyder, Hey, you finally get to make your director's cut. Weak. Weak Weak? No. Okay, so, um... This is in order to get the candle and uh, control of the fire to finally put that light in the window. And the implication is that Mr. Snyder is going to turn Jarvis into a trophy like that taxidermied cat. And Mr. X is like, perfect, this is going to happen. Um, I'm going to step out of the painting to watch you put the light on. It's going to be great. So he steps out of the painting and just as the light goes on in the window, we hear a distant scream from Jarvis as he's killed and taxidermied. Mm -hmm. As Mr. X is standing there admiring his painting that he now considers done, his brow furrows and he goes, hmm, something's not quite right. A woman who's just like someone who's attending the museum walks by and she's like, oh, I I like this painting with that that light in the window. And he's like, "Mm, no, everything's off balance now. What this needs now is some kind of statue under the trees there of a a dainty woman like yourself. Hey, miss, have you ever really looked at a painting? And that's how the first section ends. Uh, The implication is that he's going to bring the girl in to become the statue. Mm -hmm. I think the first story is probably the strongest of the three stories. I don't know if like on a filmmaking level, if it's the strongest segment But I think it's the strongest of the three stories and the most, for me anyways, the one that, like, hits closest to horror. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think it's really cool. It takes a little while for it to really bring in the horror, for lack of a better word. Because it kind of is doing some jokes of, like, the fact that Mr. X is standing there as Mr. Jarvis is getting berated by his superior for the broken glass or whatever. Like, it has, like, a lot of humor, British humorisms in the beginning. Yeah, I would describe the sense of humor as being kind of like a a black humor, black comedy humor, where, like, we're talking about death, but it's, it's funny, you know, kind of thing. It's sometimes hard with something like this because it's from the 50s, but, like, As an audience member here in 2020, like, I figured out, like, okay, yeah, he's from inside the painting, and he's going to bring him into the painting, and that's how he's going to get this light, and blah, 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 like, really fast, but the pacing of the segment was so slow, it was if, like, the film thought that, like, people really needed that idea kind of, like, piecemeal explained to them or something, because it moves so slowly, and it's like, oh, the big twist is, you know, that we're going to go into this painting. Um, So I'm not really sure about that. Um, I think the film is pretty explicit that the dude's from the painting. Like, they 
basically showed in the first shot that he's come out of the painting and broken the glass. I feel like they're easing you in through the British humor. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that choice, but I think that's why it feels like the pacing's odd. And then once you're in, there's a lot of things done to make it clear that Mr. Jarvis is a little fucked. Mm -hmm. The way that the tenants of the house, I guess, keep kind of like taking his things, like they take his matches, they take his watch. Um, The way that Mr. Snyder talks about like, oh, no one wants to see my trophy room and and stuff. It feels very much like um, a spider spinning its web Mm -hmm. for the like unsuspecting fly. So I, I see where you're coming from with the pacing, but I think that's very purposeful to kind of pull out that feeling of dread or tension on the part of the audience. Yeah, it's very much structured like a classic kind of ghost story thing with like a little winky, not really twist ending, but a little like, ah, uh, kind of like ending where you know that this next girl's going to be the next victim. It just, for me personally, like kind of meanders a bit too much and ultimately for what the payoff is it's too much build up because we don't see Jarvis get killed we leave the painting and we just sort of hear it off camera yeah um the whole deal is we need Jarvis so that we can get the candle from Snyder it's not really explained why Snyder has the candle and why he's so possessive about it and why he's the only one who can control it. Like a lot of the rules that the characters operate on are arbitrary for the sake of the story, which makes the story itself feel rather arbitrary. It was, um, for lack of a better word, dense in, in the sense of like, there's too many rules here. I don't think we're supposed to understand the rules because it's not really important for us to do so. It's a little bit odd because I feel like if this was a play, like a short play at a drama festival or something, I think I'd really enjoy it. But somehow on film it didn't work for me, which is unfortunate because one of the real joys of the piece is some stuff that you can only do in film. Like the way that they quote-unquote walk into the painting and some of the special effects used to do that and to indicate once they're in the painting that it's kind of a skewed off kind of world. Lots of Dutch angles. I think it was some matte work in order for them to kind of move in, plus some, like, miniature work. Mm -hmm. It it was really interesting. It was kind of neat. I ultimately might have to blame my problems in this segment on the directing and maybe the cinematography a little bit, because something about the pacing didn't feel like you know, the web tightening around an unsuspecting guy so much as it felt like, okay, yeah, so what's the point here? And then when we got to the point being like, oh, okay. And it didn't really have enough punch for me in that regard. That's funny because the woman serves punch (laughs) to Jarvis. The directing and cinematography was very pedestrian to me. It resembles a lot TV direction, at least to my eyes. And, you know, the house, the painting of the house is like so cool and is so like spooky and, you know, perfectly gothic. And then the interiors are just lit like flat, complete light. 
the so much is made of the fact that they don't have any light. So when it gets dark at night, like they have no light at all. And it's because they have no matches. Mm -hmm. And this whole intriguing idea of like, because they live in this painting world, they don't have anything that they can't, they don't have anything that doesn't exist in the painting. So they have to go and get it. Right. Yeah. But yet, despite that, it's brightly lit in the house the whole time we're here. I definitely wanted it to be darker at the very least, like, when we first go in and it's so bright, um, I thought it would be getting darker. Yeah, over time. Yeah. So you never really get a sense that, like, the light in the window does anything or mean anything. Nothing really changes once um, Mr. X has the candle. It just, like, doesn't feel like they're doing the most that they could with this material. And, you know, the sets are cool, right? And, like, the way that the painted backdrop makes the house look so skewed and weird. A lot of that stuff is great, but I don't think on a direction level and a cinematography level, it's really doing the job that it could. And it mostly feels like we're holding back and we are keeping things light and we're kind of keeping stuff that's too upsetting or dark out of sight, out of mind. And to me, that really ultimately like hurt the piece quite a bit. And speaking of like the unclear rules... When the whole story revolves around, well, we have to go outside to get anything that isn't in the painting, it's unclear to me how it works when, like, well, you guys are in the house, though, and the interior of the house is not depicted in the painting, so what of what's here is of the painting, and what is what you brought in? Like, Yeah. Yeah. That that was a little odd. Um, I will say that uh, the dude playing Mr. X... Mm. Alan Bedell. So he is in all three segments. And he's pretty dang good in this. Yes. He he does that, like, polite, but I'm going to kill you kind yeah. of attitude very well. Indeed. Well, let's move on to the second one. If... Cool. You Killed Elizabeth <laughs> is the title of the second story. I feel like at this point it's important to say that we don't see the titles of the stories until the very end of the movie, because this title <laughs> is definitely a spoiler otherwise. <laughs> It'd be like if the title of Fight Club was, I was Tyler Durden. (laughs) Edgar and George have always been together. Two peas in a pod. Best friends. Edgar always was more popular, especially with the ladies. His only weakness seems to be that he has blackouts when he happens to mix alcohol, like champagne and whiskey, for example. Like, throughout the night. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, imagine a cocktail with, like, whiskey and champagne. Pro- that's probably a thing. But, like, I mean, throughout the night. Okay. Well, they're all grown up now, and they're running their own advertising firm. They're real madmen. <laughs> Only, you know, they're British men in the 50s, so it's like a, a much more um, polite and uh, boring version of madmen. <laughs> Edgar has to head out of town for three weeks to really get that last account And while he's gone, George meets Elizabeth. And they really hit it off. Uh, They're falling in love quick. And he even gives her this unique bracelet that's been in his family for at least one generation. (laughs) It's from his mother. Once Edgar comes back from his trip, same thing as always happens. Elizabeth leaves George for Edgar. She seems real broken up about it. And Edgar as well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Why did you give me that look? Edgar is even like, we didn't mean for this to happen. It just happened. And George is like, yeah, it happens every time. 
One night, George and Elizabeth had this, like, regular spot, and so much so that they know the barkeep, Harry. George goes there one night, and Harry's like, hey, um, Elizabeth is, is there with your friend. And George sees them together, and he's like, ugh, fuck this, and kind of leaves. Later that night, he gets a call from Edgar to come out to this other pub, because uh, he has something that he really needs to talk to him about. When George gets there, it's clear that Edgar has been drinking and has been mixing his alcohol, so George is like, dude, you're on the way to a blackout. What are you doing? And Edgar's like, I, I just needed to work up the nerve to tell you that we got engaged. It just happened. I don't know. It's the 50s, I guess. That just happens. The engagement fairy came down <laughs> and told us we were engaged. At this point, George and Edgar have a fight. George holds out Elizabeth's key and he's like, fine, have the tramp, here's her key, I won't need it anymore. And Edgar, who's drunk, is like, oh, what a tramp. And it's like, yeah, you dunce, you stole her from your best friend. Of course yeah, well, she slept with someone else. Yeah, you, mm -hmm. you idiot. Yeah. Um, but he punches out George and he has a nosebleed and walks out into the night going, she's a tramp. At this point, I should probably mention that we've been getting George's narration through all this, kind of telling us the story. Of yeah, like, it's, it's from George's point of view, not Edgar. Yeah, it, and it's not omniscient. So George, he comes home, and we hear his narration saying like, no, I was really mad at Edgar still, but I was worried because I knew that he would be heading for a blackout. So I tried to stay up, and I ended up sleeping on the couch. The next morning... Edgar comes home, and he's like, yeah, I, I had a blackout. And they realize that he's covered in blood. And they look at the morning papers, and Elizabeth has been murdered. Newspapers work fast in <laughs> 1955. So George is like, okay, so no one would have seen you. Otherwise, the cops would have been here already, or you would have been picked up on the streets. Let me take your rain jacket that's covered in blood, and we'll burn it. You go have a bath, and I'll try to cover up for you. And Edgar's like, what? I don't know, I, I had a blackout, what happened? And George is like, no, don't worry, we have an alibi, we'll be each other's alibi. You came back here after meeting Elizabeth, and we talked and stayed up till like 1.30, so neither of us could be implicated in this. Everything seems to be going over well, the police have left, and Edgar feels really confused, he's like, no, I'm, I need to go for a walk and clear my head. And George goes back to the stove to kind of stoke the flames to continue burning the rain jacket and other clothes. Edgar comes back that night, and we see him come in and pick up the phone and dial for the cops. And he's like, the murderer is here. Hangs up. George comes out, and he says, Edgar, wh what are you doing? And Edgar goes, you killed Elizabeth! It all came together. Um, I couldn't have had her key, because when we got into the fight, it fell on the table, and you had the key, so you killed her. Um... I'm calling the cops on you. And George is like, damn it. And they fight. The police start knocking on the door. And during the fight, George pushes Edgar out the window. And then calls to the police like, no, Edgar, don't jump. So the police come in and they think that Edgar jumped out of guilt. And George plays the sap card. And he's like, yeah, I was trying to cover for my friend, but... Uh, I found out that he actually was the murderer when I, he was burning his raincoat and all these things, and basically fully pinning it on Edgar. 
it seems like George has kind of gotten away with it. He goes back to that regular bar where he knows the barkeep, Harry, and it, it's like maybe they were talking about the case or something. It's an odd cut, but in any case, he's like, okay, well, here's the coins to pay for my drink. See you later, Harry, and he walks out the door. And Harry goes to pick up the change, but included in it is the bracelet that he had seen George give to Elizabeth. And he looks back out over George, leaving the room, and picks up the phone to call the police. Because he puts two and two together. And presumably George was arrested on his way to the train, or whatever Alfred Hitchcock would say. Exactly. Yeah, I think this was my least favorite of the three segments, for like, a lot of different reasons. It's certainly the farthest away from horror, because it's just a murder story. And... I think the narrator calls it a whodunit as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And, like, as a whodunit, it's just not good, and I don't care about <laughs> anyone in it. To be fair, they did succeed in tricking me. I thought Edgar definitely was the murderer, and I thought George was being a sap, covering up for him yet again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, you idiot. And then when Edgar was calling the police, I thought Edgar who had done it, in my mind, was going to pin it on George and get out of everything scot-free, but it was actually the reverse. So I do have to applaud them for that. Yeah, I I will agree with you there. I think that the segment thinks it's cleverer than it is, though, because when Edgar, you know, reveals how he figured it out, and he's like, it was you all along, because you you knew about my blackouts, and you were prepared to use them as an alibi or whatever, and he's, like, laying out the clues, and there's just, like... There's no hint of it. There's, like, two clues. It's not, like, a big, complicated thing, and it's not clever that you figured it out, but also it's not something, like, the audience could have really figured out either. Like, it's... Yeah, because it all hinges on the key. Because Edgar's, like, you know I black out, but I remember everything right up before that. And I remember the key, but I remember it landing on the table, so I didn't have it. Yeah. And I confirmed this with the pub owner. Mm -hmm. And... At no point does the audience see what happens to the key. Like, it kind of gets pushed out of George's hand, so I just assumed that he grabbed it. I didn't see what happened to it. The other thing is that, like, I don't know if, like, this story would have been better if it, you know, had been, like, a feature-length story or something, because there's not a lot of story here. But I will say that the short format does the story harm as well because it feels like we're really rushed through things and it feels like events only happen because they're what needs to happen next in the story. It's like the movie equivalent of being told an and then story. Yeah. Because like, you know, they're these best friends from Cambridge or whatever who grew up together and fought in the war together. Like, oof, but laying it on thick. Right. And so they've been through thick and thin Um, but we never really are given a good chance to get to know them in a way that we would care about either of them as characters. Okay, Edgar's more outgoing and George is more introverted. Other than that, they're kind of the same guy. There's not a lot to, like, distinguish them. Events move so quickly. Like, I couldn't really tell if the events of the story were supposed to be taking place over a longer time frame, but it legitimately seems as though... Edgar goes out of town for, like, a weekend. George, like, meets Elizabeth one night. They go on, like, a date the next day. And now she's, like, the true love of his life that he's never had before. 
Edgar comes back on like Monday is like, hey, did you meet someone? One thing that's frustrated me immediately was that like George kind of like stammers his way through not telling Edgar. Uh, he's really reluctant to tell Edgar at all about Elizabeth. Which well, because Edgar's going to steal her. He's, he's afraid that Edgar will steal her. But it also means that when Edgar does steal her, it kind of feels like George didn't like, to put it bluntly, lay a strong enough claim to her. Like, it, like as if it wasn't really that clear how like serious... Like, how would Edgar know how serious things exactly. were? Exactly. You know, and, maybe he just thought it was yet another fling. Right. And it's really serious... But also, like, it got really serious really quickly. One of the biggest, I think, flaws of it is we don't see enough of Elizabeth or get enough of her point of view on anything. Like, we know that George thinks that Elizabeth is the love of his life, and we kind of just assume that Elizabeth feels the same way because the story isn't telling us any differently. But then George introduces the two of them at a dinner they immediately go to dance, and by, like, the next day, it seems, they're cheating on him with each other. And by that evening, it seems, they've gotten engaged. So I guess Elizabeth wasn't very serious about George after all, or Edgar is the most charming person to ever live. <laughs> Something that we never... Like, we get told that Edgar's really good with the ladies and that he's more outgoing and personable, but we never really see that because the Edgar we see in the story is the one who has to be, like, half drunk 90% of the time because he just had a blackout. Yeah. And so then George goes to talk to Edgar that evening, and Edgar's like, yeah, we just got engaged. It just sort of happened. And it just keeps feeling like things happen in this story suddenly because they're in the script. And I know that, like, as an English major, I'd be able to be like, well, unreliable narrator. Because mm -hmm. it's all from George's point of view. So, of mm -hmm. course, he'd be the most angelic person. Yeah. Um, but, like, yes, we can have, like, a certain point of view in film. But by its own nature, film is a third-person kind of medium. Mm -hmm. Like, we even play around with that in the previous story. Right. So you need... If, if that's what you're doing, writer or director, you need to have more to it beyond just George's telling the story. Yeah, and again, it's the difference between a literary medium yeah. and a cinematic one. All three of these feel like they're probably better on the page than they are in film. Which is odd, because this is an original story written for the screen. Yeah, I... It was very frustrating to me, and I don't know if the fault is the directors in this case, but it also feels like it might be the actors, because none of them really pulled off what they needed to. The problem with short fiction, if you're doing it in film is your actors need to be that much stronger because they need to get across their characters in way less time with way less dialogue. Yeah. You know, Elizabeth needed to be the most charming person in the world, not only to explain how George goes with her so quickly, but that Edgar goes with her so quickly. Because the other part of this story that's kind of arbitrary, like, it's one thing to say that George is a wallflower, so women tended to go for Edgar because he's more extroverted, but, like... You guys are best friends since childhood, and your best friend's like, here's the girl I'm dating, and you're like, well, I'm just going to steal her from you. 
If the idea of the story is supposed to be that Edgar isn't a malicious son of a bitch, then Elizabeth needs to be that much more entrancing so we can understand why he would immediately be like, cool, I'm going to steal this girl away from you. Yeah, and I definitely see what you mean with like the time frame being odd. We get like explicit timing stated in dialogue of Edgar being gone for three weeks, so we mm-hmm. know that the romance has at least been going on for that long. Mm-hmm. But it seems like it takes a weekend yeah, for, the, for Edgar to steal Elizabeth. Yeah, regardless of what timing is being said in dialogue, the pacing of the the editing makes it seem like this happens within like a couple days, like the whole story. Yeah, it, most of the love story for, for both ends is a montage. Yeah, and so to suddenly be like, oh, and now we're getting married... And then the biggest part of the story that fails for me is that the jump from that to I'm going to kill Elizabeth yeah. doesn't have really anything to go for it. Like I kill Edgar. Right. And like, then you get the business by yourself. Sure, he's quote unquote the brains of the operation, but you can like go to another you firm. You can hire other people. We don't get enough Elizabeth in the short. And part of that is we can't show you the murder scene because, you know, that would give away who who kills her, right? But, like, if I'm George, and I've had this more popular best friend my whole life, and then he steals my girl, why is my reaction to go kill her and then pin it on him? That gets me nothing. That gets me my best friend hanged for murder, and my fiancé dead, and I have nothing? Like, it, it makes really no sense because it's the unreliable narrator with George and he's playing to the audience in his narration like he's innocent, we don't get to understand his psychology enough to understand why he killed Elizabeth. So at the end of the day, Elizabeth just comes across as a prop. She Yeah, she's the sexy lamp. Yeah, she exists for George and then Edgar to fall in love with so that one of them can kill her and frame the other for it. And, you know... Again, with the pacing that the next morning it's already in the newspaper and then the police are already here. And it just, it's a lot happening in a short amount of time and none of it gets the weight it needs to really land. And I think, like I said, coming back to the actors, like George tosses Edgar out a window and it's like, even if you hated this guy and even if he's been gnawing at you your whole life because he's more popular and you need to kill him so that you don't go to the gallows for this. He's still your best friend for years. Like, you would be so racked up against it. But all the characters in this story are so British that, like, if (laughs) any one of them had enough emotion to drive them to commit murder, I didn't see it in this movie. Like, he, when Edgar thinks he's killed Elizabeth, it's like, oh, gosh, I had a blackout. I must have killed Elizabeth. Oopsies. Yeah. Like, yeah. It didn't work for me, Sarah. Yeah. Same. Like, kudos for tricking me. Like, Mm -hmm. successfully hoodwinking me. But, uh, that's it. And also, why does him having the bracelet give it away? Again, yeah, this because, is a, like, this you would have had to go through her things. things. She's been dead. Back. You would have gotten it back. Yeah, Again, no this is a it, thing. It's a time frame problem. It only gives him away if he went to go talk to Harry, like, right after Edgar was killed. Because then it's like, how did you get the bracelet back so quickly if it wasn't for the fact that you must have taken it off her when you killed her? But, like, with no indication of the time framing, because every shot in this section, like, laps dissolves to the next shot, as yeah. if months are occurring. Like It's definitely a, a Hitchcock Presents situation. Yeah. It feels tacked on. Yeah. All right. 
third and final story, Lord Mountrego. And to remind everyone, this is the one that is adapting the W. Somerset mom story. Now, it's pretty beat for beat, what I described. Mm -hmm. But it's done better. So we have Lord Mountrego. He humiliates Labour MP Owen in the house, basically ruining his career. And Owen's like, I'll get back at you, Mount Drago, <laughs> in not so many words. He begins to appear in Mount Drago's dreams to humiliate him. We have a couple of instances of, like, Mount Drago showing up to a ball with no pants. <laughs> and Owen's, like, starting the laughing at him. Worst of all, uh, Owen seems to reference it in the real world, which Mount Drago can't even fathom. Like, in the case of the pants situation, um, when they pass in the hall, uh, Owen, like, looks down at his pants and looks up and gives him, like, a look. And Mount Drago's like, yeah, do I have my pants? I have my pants, right? There is a fun, um, fun bit where, um, Mount Drago falls asleep while preparing for this big speech. And in his dream, he is giving the speech to the House of Lords and um, forgets it and starts singing the Daisy Daisy song, which <laughs> I only know from 2001 <laughs> Space Odyssey. So Orson Welles is belting out Daisy Daisy. And um, it is hilarious. So the opposition to Mount Drago's um, party is like singing along in a mocking way and Owen is there just like ha 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 you dunce. It's a fun bit though. I like it. So Mount Draco is at his wits end. Eventually there's this one dream he has where Orson Welles is clearly having just a wonderful time at a party um, and he hits Owen in the dream over the head with a bottle and when he wakes up from his nap Owen complains of like having a headache like someone it feels like a bottle's been smashed over my head, and he gives Mondrago a look. So when, um, at his next uh, psychiatrist appointment with Dr. Audlin, Mondrago says, you know, I'm at my wit's end, but I know that I can be rid of him without having to apologize to him. If I can kill Dream Owen, he'll die in real life. Mm -hmm. Now, the next dream, we don't get to see. We just get to hear some of the sound design, and then Mondrago awakes. And what we hear is basically a, a train running over train tracks and people screaming. And when uh, Mondrago awakes, he's like, someone would definitely die if he were pushed under the train, right? <laughs> so he's probably dead then, right? Um, his wife is like, yeah, sure, honey. Here's your morning paper. So, Mount Draco's like, cool, I've gotten rid of Owen. Let's go to the house, give my speech, it'll be great. So he's giving the speech, and he's even, like, proud of himself, because he sees that Owen isn't in his seat. And then as he gets to the climax of his speech, he starts, like, seeing something off-screen, as if maybe he can see Owen. We don't get to see him, but we do get to hear his laughter echoing through the House of Lords. And Mondrago's reacting, but no one else is. Um, so he panics and runs out. And as he's running, he falls down these stone steps and dies. But just before he dies, uh, Dr. Audlin, who is there because is you know, Mondrago's wife, blah, 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 I don't need to go into it. But Dr. Audlin is there, and Mondrago's like, You were right, doctor. I killed Owen, but he was still alive. But now in death, I'll be free. 
and someone who's like an onlooker is like, oh, and no, we, someone found his body this morning under some train tracks. And the doctor's like, oh, shit. And Montrego's like, oh, shit. So I did kill him. But that means that as I die, I'm not free of him. And then he dies. Yeah. And Dr. Odlin's face is just like, oh, shit. I fucked up. The end. And then that's also the end of the movie. We don't even come back to the narrator. That's right. So... Orson Welles is having so much fun in this. The segment's biggest advantage is having Orson Welles. Yes. Both in a performance as Lord Mount Drago and in whatever capacity he might have directed it. In terms of direction style, I detect Welles mostly in the dream sequences and in how we transition in and out of those dream sequences with like the way that the lighting is used. Um, in the real world sequences, I don't see a lot of anything I recognize as, as Wellesian. Well, that was probably what was shot on the first day. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, and Wells's performance really helps sell this story, which might be the only one of the three that works better on film just because it's got Wells to sell it. What Wells manages to sell so well is the idea of like a guy having stupid dreams about his co-worker so hard that he wants to murder someone over it or kill himself <laughs> over it, which is, I'm sorry, I still think a stupid idea for a story. I thought it was dumb when I heard it before, and I still think it's dumb. Well, Wells manages to sell it. Definitely, Dr. Oblin should be filed for malpractice, because as soon as your patient is saying, like, even in the dream world... I'm going to kill him, you you should be saying something. Sure. So Alan Bedell in this one plays Owen. And I kept trying to figure out what the fuck the point of this story was and like what it's it was. Welsh magic back. Yeah. Exactly. Like I was trying to figure out what was going on and Welsh what the hell the magic. story is about. And yeah, it's basically Owen's Welsh, so he has magic. And like of course he's Welsh. His name is Owen. Like, if he was Irish, he'd be Sean. And if he was Scots, he'd be Angus. Like, <laughs> it's just, like, the implication of the story is literally that, like, he's, like, yeah, done some fey magic on Lord Mount Drago here. And then it's like, okay, so is the moral of the story that Drago should have apologized to him and that he was too prideful? Because then it's like, well, but Owen died? So, like, is Owen the bad guy because he's cast a hex on this guy like yeah. i don't understand what the fuck the point of the story is it works because of wells selling it yeah otherwise it's it's a weird idea for a story and i don't like there is the class thing like owens in the house of commons he's an mp he's uh for labor he's like a man of the people he, his big speech in the segment is all this like the people you know <laughs> we're going to give it back to you the, the people. people um <laughs> and you know mount drago's a lord and he's the foreign secretary and all these things so it's like big shot versus the little guy but then like the little guy's kind of an asshole because he keeps popping up in Mount Drago's dreams and, and taunting him like he's Mr. Mixix Pidlick. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, as a story, doesn't work, but because Wells sells it well, it's entertaining to watch and you can, you can follow along with it, right? Yeah. And like I said, this makes the short story seem to have more flair. 
Yeah, I... Like, I, I understand where Somerset Mom is coming from mm-hmm. with this more than just... I mean, to be fair, I did just read some synopses online, but, mm-hmm. like, it was still, like, why... I don't get it. Yeah, I I think my big problem with, like, a, all three of these was a little bit, I don't care, and why <laughs> should I? But um, with this one in particular, I think it's pulled off the best of the three as a piece of filmmaking, but it leans away from horror for me because it mostly is in the realm of, like, you know, it's a psychological story because it's about him being driven to madness or whatever, but most of it is, like, the goofiness of the funny dream sequences. I wanted a bit more chaos. Like, I kept thinking about the um, climax of Dead of Night. Mm, yeah. Where it really, truly feels nightmarish. And we don't really get that here. No. This is like a, a reserved version of Dead of Night. Like, like stiff upper lip. Yeah. That, I think, comes to the core of my biggest problem with the movie overall. I've probably given this away, but like, I don't really think this should be considered a horror movie. It's funny because here on Scream Scene, we like to have a good time. We like to you know, entertain people and educate people. I feel like the other public service we end up doing is, like, correcting Wikipedia pages as we go to be like, (laughs) this is not a horror movie. This should don't say that. And if this is horror, to me, this is the most, like, button up, like, uh, the most effect you're going to get on this is, like, if you went to the most reserved buttoned up old British person. You could get their monocle to come out listening to these (laughs) tales. Just the pop-off. Yeah. Because, like, they're so reserved, I think is such a great word. Like, the first one with the painting, it's like so much hullabaloo for a story that ends up as this guy got pulled into a painting and killed in the painting. Which, that should be dope! But, like, we don't see any of that and most of the story is spent on like and here's this piece we stole yeah and you know and there's nothing we see that could be very upsetting at all like the visuals keep things very bland the second story is like here's these white upper crust ad execs and the story of how they screwed each other over and again we don't see elizabeth get killed We don't really see any of the unpleasant incidences. And even though these characters are like murderers and drinkers and philanderers and adulterers, they're so polite and reserved through the whole thing that we never really get a sense of them being upsetting as people. And finally, the third story is all about how this British lord was driven to dream murder and suicide, kind of, because he had some bad dreams where he wasn't wearing his pants at work. And it's like, I can imagine, you know, the stiff upper lip British person going, my word, at these stories. But anyone else, it's like, I don't care. So, we always also like to be like, but what was the intent mm-hmm. behind the movie? Right. And I do think the intent was a horror movie. Okay. Like, I do think the intent was to scare you, to have that feeling of dread as Jarvis is getting fucked, 
to have that like kind of shock of like, but I thought George was nice and he's the murderer. What? And he pushed Edgar out the what? And then to have the like the feeling of like, but this Lord, the secretary of state, what a scandal. He's going to murder someone yeah. like, or like, how dare this Welshman cast his hexes upon him. I want to ask you, I, I agree that this is definitely a, a buttoned up way too tight, reserved to the point of being completely restrained and not having any teeth as a result kind of horror movie. Yeah. One of our last British movies was The Monkey's Paw. Right. 1948. Mm-hmm. It is ranked number 161. Yeah, that was a bad movie. Um, it's episode 151, if anyone wants to take a listen. How do you compare this as a horror movie to Monkey's Paw as a horror movie? So, Monkey's Paw has a lot of problems, one of which is that it takes forever to get anywhere it has that like i took a two-page short story and turned it into a 90-minute film problem that like the grinch who stole christmas has a lot of its filler but once we actually get to the part that's the story which is the very climax of the film the movie is doing the work to try to be scary you know it's got the sound design it's got the cinematography it's got the wind howling and the darkness and the footsteps and all that stuff that it needs to have, it undercuts it almost immediately, but it has all of it. Nothing in this movie has any of that. The scariest story should be in the picture, and they go out of their way to just kind of make it, like, mildly unpleasant. Okay, I I can agree with that. I think, I, I stand by my point of, like, I do think that the intent with this project was to make a horror anthology movie in the vein of Dead of Night. But, because, like, I mean, you don't get a title like Three Murder Cases. Three Cases of... Three Cases of Murder! Without that intent being there. Um, In the execution of it, I think, is where it fails. um, To the point where, like, even the directorial intent of showing, like, inside the painting or, or anything... Flounders. I wonder about the intent of the film because of the fact that the connection. The connection between. Weird dude who's like very disconnected and he's like popping British jokes. The narrator guy? The. the, Yeah, our presenter, the the guy introducing the stories. I mean, that stuff definitely speaks to the Britishness too because like he seems so embarrassed to be introducing horror stories and trying his darndest to be like, yes, it's fine though, right? Because we all enjoy a bit of murder story from time to time. Yeah, like, you think of, like, the Twilight Zone introductions that you get, where Mm -hmm. you even get, like, a little bit of an underpinning of a theme, or Mm -hmm. it sets the mood of, like, a creepy tone or, or something like that. And this guy's just, like, in the case of one artist he'd be willing to go very far to create the perfect painting. And you're sitting there at home being like, yeah, murder, okay. (laughs) So here's what I'm saying. The through line between these three pieces is that they all involve murder. Yeah. But, like, otherwise there's very little connection. Two of them are supernatural. One is not. One of them 
is like a horror ghost story, the other two aren't, right? Like, the the narrator even has trouble because it's like, you know, well... Jumping from one to the next. Yeah, like, this one's a real whodunit, you know? It's, it's, it's interesting because... Who done it? You'll never figure it out. And this one over here is interesting because it's weird. And this last <laughs> one's interesting because Orson Welles is in it. And <laughs> Which, I mean, those things are true. Right. And so it's hard for me to figure out if the intent was to do a horror anthology or if the intent was to... I don't know, because like, it's not a crime anthology. Yeah, that's true. These are so disparate that it's very odd. <laughs> Dead of Night had a very strong connective tissue. Um, Is the supernatural real or not? And that question was posed in every single story, even as every story had like different settings and very different characters, different motivations of those characters. That question was still there, and it came to a head in the climax, even as like we're going very like surrealist, nightmarish with. The visuals. The connection that these stories have other than murder, and I'm trying to figure out what the genre connection here is, right? Because if it's not horror, what is it? And like all of these mostly to me, the thing that connects them the most is they all have that same Saturday evening post, like O. Henry kind of like winky kind of short story structure of like, oh, and then it turned out I was the murderer, or, you know, and then it turned out I was going to take someone else into the painting, or Owen was dead, actually, or whatever. And the fact that each story seems to be thinking that it's clever. Yeah. They all seem to think they're clever, and I don't know if they actually are, but, like, that's the one thing that <laughs> That's just the them. British thing in them. I know. The movie has an extremely accurate title. These are three cases of murder. That's true. That's um, true. Yeah. If you want to rank this as horror, which I'm starting to maybe come around. Okay. If only because if this isn't horror, I don't know what it is. Like, I, I what else is this? Because it's not crime. It's not, like, thriller. The closest thing is they're all, I guess, kind of spooky. Maybe a little. I don't know. If we were to rank this, um, I'm looking fairly low because of how much it's preserved. Yeah, it it really... Tepid doesn't even put it strongly enough. So, my ceiling right now is 128, Werewolf of London, down to Bride of the Gorilla at 134. Let me take a look. I could even go as far down as 140, She-Wolf of London... Because Werewolf of London is similarly, like, restrained in that British kind of way. But yeah. I I don't know. It, yeah. the, you know what the biggest fear in this movie is? Like, you know how we have to, how sometimes we'll identify, like, what's the fear in this movie? What's this movie telling us to be afraid of? What's the central thing that we're afraid of? The Welsh. This movie is most afraid of being a horror movie. <laughs> this movie is the thing this movie is most afraid of is scaring anyone in the audience. Yeah. It mostly just wants to like maybe slightly perturb you, give you that slightest little bit of thrill that your Protestant work ethic will allow you to have. Okay. What's the lowest movie on the list 
that actually manages, like, a scare? Um, okay. So I'm going to suggest above the monster walks at 152. Mm -hmm. Because the monster walks is boring. Yes. I was at least entertained by three cases of murder. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, Above monster walks, you know, scared to death is a standout. The mad ghoul is a standout. Even sex maniac is a standout. Okay. I have a spot picked out. Yeah, what is it? So, I do think... That as much as we're taking away points for um, politeness, (laughs) we do need to give some points for the fact that as much as I called the direction, you know, TV directing, and it is, like a lot of this is very pedestrian, on a professionalism level, this is a very professionally well-crafted film. And you can't say that for all the movies that are down here at the bottom. That is true. We should give some points for that. I think if we're going to rank this, we should put it below The Monster at 143 and above Night of Terror at 144. Because Night of Terror really is where the list starts to get into the stuff that's like, <laughs> these people didn't quite know how to make a movie. And The Monster is this low because it's kind of a comedy. It's kind of a parody. But on, like, a filmmaking level, like, it's Roland West. And Roland West is guilty of many crimes, one of which may or may not be murder. But he did know how to craft, like, a good-looking film. So that's kind of where I'm thinking. What do you think? It's definitely more willing to go for the thrills. Ah, yeah. Okay, sure. Let's do that. Uh... Or we could put it below Crime of Dr. Crespi, which at least has the one, like, good scene of the guy having been Yeah, buried. but if we're looking at, like, the one good scene, okay. then we're going to be here all day. That's fair. Okay. Then I'll agree. So entering the list at the new number 144 is Three Cases of Murder from 1955, directed by... Wendy Toy, David Eady, George Moore O'Farrell, and Orson Welles. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on our website. You can reach us over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and you can subscribe through our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Those really help the show get uh, featured by Apple's algorithm. You can also help the show out by simply telling a friend about us. It's October. It's the spooky season. Share the show on social media and in other socially distanced ways. Or if you have the financial means, you can also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. We've got a whole bonus episode about HUAC going up on the Patreon. We've got a audiobook adaptation of The Music of Eric Zahn by H.P. Lovecraft. Both of those will be going up before the end of the month. So if uh, that sounds exciting to you, head on to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, for our Halloween episode, 
it's time to get back to some traditional, reliable horror from Universal. It's a classic sequel. It's Jack Arnold's Revenge of the Creature. Like Creature from the Black Lagoon? The creature, yes, you've got oh. it. The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, dope. Cool. Yeah. So we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.